If you're looking to grow your business, a carefully considered merger or acquisition can instantly deliver levels of growth that could take years or even decades to achieve organically. However, the process is not without risk and the various considerations involved can be extremely daunting. I'm joined by our corporate and commercial specialist, John Morgan, to discuss how to go about pursuing a merger or acquisition. Hello, John. Uh, we know why mergers and acquisitions can be worth considering, but how should a business get started with the process? Um, it's a big decision. Um, I'm assuming that organic growth is too slow for the company concerned and it's looking to acquire a market competitor in the, in the same line of business. It's pretty rare for companies to go outside their chosen line of activity. Now, this, the obvious starting point is, are there any of your competitors that are known to be looking for a sale or have succession problems? And that's often the case with family-owned companies. The sons and daughters don't necessarily follow the parents in, into the family business. But failing that, um, always a good starting point is your own accountants. Every decent-sized firm of accountants has a corporate finance section, if, if not a department, dedicated to, to corporate deals. And that often involves them discreetly putting buyer and seller together. Obviously, that comes with a price, um, but you should budget accordingly. The alternative is to um, go to one of the corporate finance boutiques, um, but they tend to be city centre and ori orientated towards high fees and, and what they call big ticket deals. Uh, what are the main differences between mergers and acquisitions and how can businesses work out which is more suitable? Well, I think merger is something of a misnomer because um, if one considers, it's often used in professional circles when they say, let's say ABC firm of solicitors has merged with DEF firm of solicitors. But actually, in reality, it's almost certainly one firm acquiring the business of another. And so that's a, a dominant party. Um, that's a fact of corporate life. And what it involves typically is the transfer of the business from the target to the acquiring company. Um, acquisitions really is the run and mill sale and purchases. And that can be share purchases or the acquisition of businesses. Sometimes you'll find that these businesses are partnerships. Um, there's a lot of property companies that are, that are actually partnerships. Um, and you find within the bigger groups of companies, sometimes they have divisions which are doing perhaps something differently from the main theme of the group. And the holding company's board of directors decide to divest itself. So they will sell the business rather than the shares. What are the risks involved in pursuing mergers and acquisitions? There's always the human one. Let's start with the practical. It's, it, at the end of the day, it's people working with people. And sometimes the chemistry is fine and sometimes it's not. Um, there's nothing other to go by other than your, the acquirer's own judgment in these situations. But if we're going from the legal perspective, if we're talking about what are the risks, they are that 
if you're buying a business, whether it's unincorporated or incorporated, you're taking on not only its assets, which clearly is your prime reason for making the move, but also you're inheriting that potentially their liabilities, any unseen problems. These can be financial problems. They can be tax tax problems. Um, in the world of mergers and acquisitions, we really divide them into two. Acquiring a business by acquisition of its issued share capital. So if you are taking over a company, you are literally stepping into the shoes of the previous owners and you will be responsible for all its ongoing liabilities. Now, the principal ones to be concerned about are VAT, national insurance, corporation tax, any um, capital gains tax issues within the corporate tax regime. Um, if it's a business, less risk as regards taxation, uh, but obviously um, you, you're inheriting their ongoing commercial contracts and your responsibilities in relation to those contracts. And if you're not careful, you may be inheriting problems that are already there, but not necessarily disclosed to you. Okay, so how can the risks be mitigated? Well, again, before the professionals become involved, do the acquirer should do their homework properly, identify their target, make sure the fit is, is right. The job of the professionals is to obviously do the investigations into the target company and from this lawyer's point of view to prepare the acquisition documentation in which there will be, and we'll come on to this a little bit later I think, there will be any number of protections for the acquirer which are a matter for negotiation but at the end of the day the whole exercise is about the proper apportionment of risk with the acquirer always adopting a position that look you the seller must be responsible for everything up until the point of sale unless we agree otherwise. Um, and the solicitor's role in the process how would you describe that? Pivotal. Often, more often than not, solicitors will become involved a little bit down the road. That, that in a typical scenario, the company's accountants have been in and done their financial and taxation due diligence and, and reported back to their client, at which point there may or may not be a heads of agreement. Personally, I would always recommend a heads, heads of agreement, so at least you get the main points agreed in advance as to how we're going to go forward and possible timetable. From the point the solicitor picks up the matter, um, he, will, he, the solicitor, will need to put a team together because in a typical company acquisition, there are a number of disciplines that will be involved. So whilst the corporate lawyer will lead the team, the team will also comprise property lawyers, employment lawyers and tax advisors. And uh, what uh, due diligence will a solicitor undertake? Um, there is some overlap um, between what we the solicitors do and the accountants do because we will also ask for the target company's accounts, VAT returns, corporation tax returns because we need them as part of the legal process but primarily the solicitors will be looking at all the contracts of the, of the target company. Now they will be such things as 
um, employment contracts, contracts with customers, singling out particularly any major customers and the terms of those contracts. So that, for example, then you don't find yourself the, as the acquirer losing customers by virtue of their contract terms the day after completion of the sale takes place. So it's a thorough appraisal of all, all the written documentation that goes into a company's activities. And you've mentioned contracts, but what other legal documents would be involved? I mentioned my own personal recommendation is for, at the outset, heads of agreement to be signed. These are usually non-binding legally, um, but they do set out the bullet points, the price, the timetable, um, who does what, um, the, the existence of extensive warranties will be written in by the acquirer to make sure there's not too much wriggle room farther down the road. So you start with heads. Also, the acquirer is obtaining commercially sensitive information, especially if it's a, a company in competition with the acquirer. So almost certainly a confidentiality agreement, also commonly known as an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, is signed so that the potential acquirer is only using this information for the purpose of evaluating whether or not to make a bid or go ahead with, with, with the bid that's been submitted. Once that's done and signed, then the due diligence process begins. And this will entail what I would call a due diligence questionnaire. Some people call it pre-contract inquiries. Um, which really is a long list of questions, documentation questions um, to, to be submitted to the seller, which really, uh, as I touched on earlier, brings out of the drawers all their contract documentation, their employment terms, pension terms for employees, uh, and so on. Now, that can take some time because it's pulling together a, a lot of information that's probably um, being gathered over a long period of time. Uh, but, but once that's done, the depending on the nature of the sale, whether it's a if it's a share purchase agreement, that means we are acquiring the issued share capital of the target. It'll be a share purchase agreement. If it's you're acquiring the business but not the shares, it's commonly known as an APA. You know, an asset purchase agreement. That's an extensive document. Um, it often goes over a hundred pages and comprises, mm -hmm. apart from the contractual terms, a um, series of warranties. And warranties are statements of fact about the condition of the business in relation to its assets, equipment in good working order, its computers, its compliance matters, has it complied with all that's meant to under the Companies Act, um, separate warranties for taxation and a tax covenant to, to back up the ta taxation situation. That is a document, as I say, that can be bulky and is subject to extensive negotiation um, between the solicitors acting for the buyer and the solicitors acting for the seller. It is not something that is agreed and determined overnight. Once that's in place, or more or less in place, then the seller will be invited to 
uh, submit a disclosure letter. A disclosure letter is a document that qualifies the warranties. So because as, as I said, warranties are usually absolute. For example, the, the seller has complied with all its requirements under company's law and regulations. Fine, but the truth is most companies are not fully compliant. And what you can do to mitigate the impact of the warranty is to disclose to the seller, well, we did not get our accounts in on time or, or whatever it may be. We have not fully complied with the data protection regulations so that the buyer can consider and take a view and decide whether to accept that disclosure or whether the matter is going to give rise to further negotiation between the parties. And if it's something of a material nature, then this can lead to dis negotiations for a reduction in the share price. Once the disclosure is over, the final piece of quite an extensive um, jigsaw are the ancillary documents, and those are typically board minutes and bank security documents. Very few companies have a war chest um, to go to go into the market. Uh, most, uh, certainly at, at the mid-company level, will be looking to borrow from banks. So the banks will lend, but obviously on their um, usual terms and conditions, which always involve um, charges over the company's property or and are probably backed up by a debenture over over the company itself. And you've mentioned um, that in order to protect confidential and commercially sensitive information during negotiations, uh, a non-disclosure agreement can be entered into. What um, kind of things does that cover? That covers anything that's identified a very extensive and wide definition of commercial information will be incorporated in a document and a breach of it is a breach of contract so if that confidentiality is breached then the wrong party would have a right in law for recourse and and damages uh, and how long does the whole process generally take well, it's not overnight. Um, my experience is that there's usually a two or three month lead up period to the point where solicitors are involved because obviously the target company has to be identified and sounded out as to whether or not they're interested in, in a sale. Uh, but assuming they get beyond that point and it lands on the solicitor's desk, Typical period of time, I would say minimum three months, but probably rather more. Is it possible to pull out at any stage without penalty? Yes, um, it, it is. Um, there's an increasing tendency to treat some sales like a property transaction and um, sellers, are, are, uh, sellers are asking for a deposit. To be paid so if, if the buyer puts down a deposit the buyer needs to exactly set out the terms and conditions attaching to that deposit but if it is a non-refundable one and the, for whatever reason the the potential buyer decides to pull out then that deposit is likely to be lost but normally in the corporate field deposits are not paid
Okay, thank you very much, John. Um, if you'd like to know any more about mergers and acquisitions, or if you're considering a merger and, or acquisition and uh, uh, would like some advice, then please don't hesitate to contact us at uh, Manda Hadley Solicitors. Uh, our website is mandahadley.co.uk, uh, or you can contact John on our telephone number 024 7663 1212.